One of the biggest mistakes that you could possibly make is to underestimate whoever your opponent is. Uh, whether it's speech or debate or your basketball, uh, basketball team, anytime you underestimate your opponent, you're setting yourself up for a disappointment. Because if they think, or if you think that they're not a good team or they're not going to do a good job, you're not going to prepare well. While they're sweating it up in the gym or while they're practicing their, their speech and debate and you're just sitting on the couch playing Xbox, they're getting better while you're getting worse. They're making it so that you're able to come with low expectations and then have them crush you. And this is precisely what makes the devil such a brilliant strategist. Because what he's successfully done is made every single one of us, and perhaps maybe most of us, not all of us, but all of us, in many ways, underestimate his ability and his power. It's kind of like before Darth Vader was Darth Vader. He's like, you underestimate my power. Remember that scene? It's the same thing with the devil, except it's for real. We underestimate his power. And here's how I know that. In our vernacular, and even in our depiction in media, Satan is made to look like a puppy dog. He's made to look playful. In some cases, a little threatening. We've made a caricature, though. He's got horns and a, an awful-looking goatee. He's red-skinned. Other times, when you even put him in like a Disney cartoon, he looks playful and fun. Doesn't seem as threatening as you might imagine, at least the way that the Bible depicts him. And some people just go out to the absurd and make him look like this, you know, this, this dude is just cracking jokes all the time. He looks like the kind of guy you'd want at a party. Or, you know, in other cases, he's depicted as something cute and cuddly, maybe not so threatening after all. And of course, the, 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 the power behind this is not God. You understand that. This is the way that the culture understands the devil, understands Satan. And, and if there is any depiction of Satan, that's semi-reasonable. It's situations like this where it's like, oh man, good and evil. God and the devil fighting against one another. We call that dualism, where there's two powers at work against one another, equal and competing forces. That's not how the Bible talks about him. But this is why the devil is so good, because there's so much out there that seems utterly ridiculous that to believe in that is utter foolishness. And of course, you come to church and you're like, well, I believe the Bible, I believe in God. And when your friends think, when, when your friends say, hey, do you believe in the devil or do you believe in spirits? They imagine stuff like that. Now, if that comes to your mind, then no wonder we look at the devil and we scoff or we laugh. We've got other ways that we use the devil's name, right? Deviled eggs, devil's food cake. There's this thing called devil's dung, which doesn't sound pleasant. And it's supposed to be because it's not. It's an herb that smells terrible. We use his name, we use his image, we use depictions of him all throughout our culture, and really hardly any of it is accurate. Again, this is what makes the devil such a brilliant strategist. He's the enemy that you and I perpetually underestimate. And as I began this sermon, the worst mistake you can make is to underestimate your opponent, especially when it's your spiritual opponent. That's why it's important for us to know our enemy, because the enemy, as is depicted in scripture, is really, really good at being really, really bad. And his objective, his crosshairs, is you. His objective is to war and fight against God. And to do that successfully in his mind is not just to overthrow God, but to take down as many of you all as possible with him. And so today we're going to spend time looking at and thinking through who the devil is. Who the devil is he? 2 Corinthians 2.11 is what we're going to be. We're looking at one verse, but there's going to be a lot of verses thrown at you today to get a really good high-level overview of who the enemy is who's perpetuating all the deceptions that we talked about last weekend at Revival Winter Edition. So starting here, let me just give you the first point. As we look at this verse here, I want you to know who Satan is. Did you see the fire effect there? You're welcome. That was, that was clever. 
know who Satan is. And again, looking at that one verse in 2 Corinthians, it's the end of a, of a paragraph where Paul writes this. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, we rarely ever take one singular verse and talk about that. So let me just give you the context quickly. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, whom this letter was written to, hey, bring back this guy that you excommunicated, forgive him, and let him be brought back into the church. He says, I don't want him to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow because you guys have rightly pushed him away. He says, instead, bring him back into the church so that he's not going to be dis, uh, dis, uh, discouraged and run away from the church. And he says, the reason why is because we're not going to be outwitted by Satan's designs. We don't want to be ignorant of his designs. We don't want to be outwitted by him. And so Paul starts the conversation with assuming something that you and I may not think about too often. And it's, first of all, that Satan exists. He's real. He's a real force, and he's someone that you and I should be aware of, not looking at him under every bush and tree, as Pastor Mike likes to say, but being aware that he is real and he's got an agenda for you, and he's good at it. We believe Satan exists because, at least a few reasons. Now, when we come to this, I know for some of your friends, if you're talking to your friends at school and you say, hey, I heard a sermon about Satan this last weekend, they're going to look at you cross-eyed and say, well, you're a weirdo. No wonder you guys are weird like that. Compass Bible Church, you guys are always doing that weird stuff. We believe this, though, and here's why. First and foremost, we believe it because Jesus existed. That may not seem to make sense yet, but it's an important part, part here. Because the Bible is historically reliable, it's not just theologically true. It's historically true. It's historically reliable. Jesus really existed. And that's important because of the second part. Jesus told the truth. And not only did he tell the truth, he himself was the embodiment, the incarnation of truth. We believe Jesus existed. Correction. We know he existed. We believe he told the truth. And therefore, when he assumes that Satan is real and active and around us, we take that at face value. It's really quite easy. If you trust your dad or your mom, if they tell you there's cold turkey in the refrigerator, you have little doubt that there's cold turkey in the refrigerator, unless they're mistaken. Jesus being the God man doesn't make mistakes. And so when he says the devil is real, he assumes the devil's existence, we take that at face value. So when you start arguing with your friends, and that's one of your small group questions, when you start arguing with your friends about, well, does the devil even exist? How do you know? Really, the conversation is not, does the devil exist? It's really, does God exist? That's the question behind the question. And that's the question I think you would do well to spend your time on. When you're dialoguing with friends, it's not here, let me prove to you. And here's ABC reason why the devil exists. It's no, that God exists. That God exists. God is, God is told the truth. The Bible is verifiably true. Let's start the conversation there. So devil exists. We're starting with that. And that's my assumption because that's what Jesus taught. And that's what I believe. That's what we believe. Now we're going to ask the question and we're going to try to answer this then. Who is the devil? If I say, what are you? You might say, well, I'm, I'm a girl. You know, I, I, I'm a high school student. But if I say, who are you? That's getting to a question of character. What makes you tick? What makes you do the things that you do? And when we ask that question about Satan, what we're trying to do is get into his head and understand where he comes from. So let's start, let's start building a, a profile of the guy. First and foremost, the Bible assumes he exists. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about him as a matter of fact. It doesn't quite explain kind of what, what drove him to what he did. There's several passages that talk to that, but it assumes that he's there. It assumes that he's evil. It assumes that he's got an agenda, and it's not a good one. Uh, implication for us, we shouldn't ignore him. We should be aware of him. We shouldn't be overly interested in him, not trying to look him up on the Ouija board, but we should be aware that he's there. He's not a figment of our imagination. Secondly, he's also a person. 
He's a person, but not a human. I don't mean he's a person as in he's in this room right now, but he possesses three critical characteristics of a person, the things that you possess. He's non-corporeal, I mean, he doesn't have a body, but he is a person. He possesses emotion, intellect, and what's the last one? Do you remember the last one? Will, emotion, intellect, and will. Good job. Those three things are what make a person a person. And that's why we believe in a triune Godhead. Each the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit possess emotion, intellect, and will. It's a different conversation, but the same idea applies. We believe that the devil is a spirit. In fact, he was created as an angel. The devil was an angel that was created good, which is why we don't say God invented evil. God did not invent evil. God did not create evil. He created an angel that was capable of making a decision to do ill, to do wrong. And that's exactly what the devil himself did. So long ago, sometime when you and I weren't alive, the devil made a decision to rebel against God and to go his own way. And of course, you remember that some of the teaching behind that is that he took a third of the angels with him. He took one third. How many were there? We don't know. We don't know. But as spirit beings, that means that these guys have been around a lot longer than you and I have been. The devil and his minions called demons have been around since the beginning of our created history. As long as they've been around, or as long as we have been around, they've been around far longer, which all by itself makes them a credible threat against your existence, because that means they're smart. They're not God, but they're able to discern and look at you and say, I can make observations about Caitlin. I can make observations about Ruiz. I know how he lives. I know what he thinks. I know where he's going. I know what he's up to. And they can put those thoughts in our heads, and they can uh, encourage us to do their own thing. So, background. Still talking about the devil. He's powerful. God did not create him as evil. He turned that way. Those are some of the, the, the basics. Now, let's talk about some of his names, as known as. He has lots of names in Scripture. He doesn't just have a couple. You know that. The first one you might know him as, there's a TV show after this one called Lucifer. Lucifer is found one time in the Bible, and what it refers to is him as being the bright morning star. Uh, that is to say that Satan's position, Lucifer, as his name, was was exalted. He's a high-ranking official in the courts of heaven. At least he used to be. He was a bright morning star. He was also called Satan. I've been referring to him that way, and that's one of the more common names. It means adversary. You get this sense when he approached God in the book of Job, and he started, he started making accusations. He's, he's known as someone adversarial against God and against you. Speaking of that, he's also called the devil, which again, the slanderer and the accuser. That's another name for him. His job is to slander and accuse not only God, but God's people. Doesn't sound like a nice guy, does he? He's also called the serpent, or the serpent of old, which means, uh, you remember in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent came and tempted Eve, and Eve took the fruit? That's the devil incarnate. The devil's job is to be crafty, good at being bad, crafty and wise. He's also been called the great dragon. Um, dragon as being someone that consumes things. Uh, consumes things. He's evil. He's powerful. He's not to be trifled with. Uh, John called him, Jesus called him the evil one. That is to say that he's not good. He doesn't do good. The devil's not going to be saved at some point in the future. The devil doesn't have a sacrifice for his sin. The devil is condemned. And in fact, scripture talks about him as being already finished. His time is ticking, the clock is running, and he's finished because he's the evil one. There's no chance for him to do good, neither is there a chance for his minions, the, de the demons, to do good either. But he's also called the destroyer. He is someone who's perpetually at work to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his MO, that's his agenda, and that means he's not your friend. 
The devil is someone not to be taken lightly. Scripture over and over again repeats the refrain that he's dangerous. He's out to get you. He's not the boogeyman. He's not chupacabra. He's not, you know, this, uh, this monster in your closet. He's real. And I know what makes this conversation difficult is that you look at things like this and it sounds so mythical. It sounds like, man, I just, <laughs> I read about this, you know. I, it's, I read about this in my history class under uh, Greek mythology or uh, other myths of, of ancient peoples. That's not the way the Bible presents him. The Bible presents him as a real incredible threat. Now, on his resume, when he starts saying, okay, here are some of the things I've done. Here are some of the, the positions I've held. The devil held positions like anointed guardian cherub. Again, high-ranking, powerful. He's highest among the highest, four-star general kind of guy. He's also called the ruler of this world, which means he controls much of all that happens around you. All you have to do is turn on Spotify. Look at the top 100. I talked about this last weekend. Look at the Billboard Top 100. Are there any songs in there that talk about the glory of God in Christ Jesus? No. And that's because Satan's agenda is largely, uh, is largely happening. His work is being accomplished. He's also called the prince of the power of the air, which is another way of saying he's, he's ruling this world, but his rule is also limited to this world. He doesn't rule God's kingdom, uh, not in, in a universal sense. He's ruling the world's kingdom as it stands today, which is why also he's called the God of this world. He has power and control over uh, influences. He, in fact, he influences most of how the world operates today. Does that mean God's absent? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that, by and large, who's ruling this world, this dispensation, is the devil. That's why he's called lowercase g, God, God of this world. He's also got a lot of help. Like I said, he's got demons that he's got, uh, he's got hordes of demons behind him. We don't know the number of those, but that means he's got a lot of help to work his magic, his dark magic. In fact, on top of that, I should say this, the, the devil is limited, which means it's very likely he's not here. The devil is not sitting next to you. But that doesn't mean that his demons, his minions, are not active and at work against you, especially, especially, especially if you're a Christian. His objective is to deceive you. His objective is to take you out. In fact, we're going to talk more and more about how he works. But just know the devil is limited. He can't be in all places at all times. He's not all powerful. And realistically, he's not a real threat against God. Remember in Job chapter 1, he had to go to God and say, God, can I please harass Job? Like a puppy with his tail between his legs, he had to ask God if he could do something bad. So understand that even though the devil is a real threat to you, he's no threat to God. God is powerful and in control, and there's no chance that God will ever be defeated by the enemy. But that doesn't mean he's not real and dangerous. Looking again at 2 Corinthians 2.11, we also have to understand that when we sing, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his designs. That means you and I should know what he's up to, the work he's actually doing. So point number two, I want you to put it this way. You need to know how Satan works. Not only know who he is, but know what he's up to. How's he getting his job done? And remember, he's been around a long time. He knows how people work. He knows what makes us tick. He knows what our temptations are and how to make the most out of every temptation, which is why last week we talked about money, sex, and power. Are those inherently bad things? No, no, they're not. But the devil knows how to take good things, pervert them, and make them tempting to you. That's what he does. A really good team doesn't just know their own playbook, but they know the playbook of their opposing team. They're watching the tape. How does, how does the quarterback respond when it's fourth quarter and third down? You know, what is he doing? What kind of plays is he running? Are they going for the long? Or are they going for the short? They go for the running game or they go for the passing game? Or if you're a boxer, you know, how do, what, what's his dangerous position? Does he have a dangerous left hook or a right hook? You got to know your enemy. 
And so that means we got to know how he works in your life. Then here's how you need to know he works against you. His first and foremost desire is to turn your heart against God. And even in this room, he's been successful. People have attended True North for years. True North has been around a long time. And there are people, countless students who have gone through this ministry who no longer walk with God because Satan was good at his job. He turned their heart against him. Because when you find out that you can get what you want apart from God, what you want as in your fleshly desires, then, man, it's really attractive. Turn your heart against God. That's what Job wanted to do. And think about the life of Job. What did he do to, to accomplish that in Job? He destroyed everything that Job loved. Correction, he destroyed everyone that Job loved in order to make Job deny God. When I said last week, would you be satisfied if God took everything away from you? I was thinking of this. If God took everything away from you, would you be satisfied with just him? If the answer is no, you're, you're in danger because what God wants you to, to be most trusting of and most desirous of is him. Not your hus future husband, not your future wife, not your money, not your, your power or your prestige. The devil was good, but, the, but God was better. Job was able to overcome those distractions. The devil also wants you to trust not him, but to trust anything else but God. To trust your resources, to trust your good looks, to trust your power, to trust your intellect, to trust your whatever. Anything but God. And whatever good gifts God has given you, the temptation for us is, of course, to trust those things. Maybe you're born into a very wealthy family and your family has, you know, buckets and buckets of cash such that your swimming pool just fills money. Not even water, like you just swim in money. And the devil would love to get you to say, hey, doesn't that, doesn't that feel nice to just be able to buy whatever you want? Or maybe you don't have a lot of money, but you're really attractive. Doesn't it feel good when people look at you and just admire your body or admire your face or tell you how wonderful you are? Or maybe you're tempted to, be, uh, to, be, uh, to not trust God for entirely other reasons. Maybe it's just you're physically strong or who knows? There's a million and one things the devil can use against you. And my point is saying that, that you know the devil's working in your life, not him specifically, but his demon powers, when you're tempted to say, ah, not so much God, but this. You feeling anxious and worried? Tactic of our enemy. His job is to invoke anxiety and worry in your life. First Peter talks about that. His job is to, uh, is to, instead of having you humbly trust God, where you're casting your cares upon him, to instead be fearful, anxious, worried about the future. Or your homework. Or your college. Maybe your college applications. Or your your boyfriend or your girlfriend, the person you want to date, or maybe you're worried about getting on varsity. Whatever he can use to dominate your thinking such that God is removed, congratulations, the enemy's working in your life. Let me, let me just stop right here and ask, is, is the devil at work in any of you right now? If, you, if you're struggling with God, you're saying, I, I'm turning against God, okay, there it is. You have evidence of the devil's work. If he's turning your trust away from God to your stuff, your intellect, your beauty, your prowess, he's, work, he's at work. If he's invoking anxiety and worry, which I know is prominent today congratulations the devil's at work that's not all he continues his job is to hinder your growth in christ if you're a christian the devil wants to take you out simple as that hence the spiritual armor that's so necessary if you're not wearing the spiritual armor you're dangerous you're in danger you're vulnerable which is a major i mean guys this is so important i want to spend really all of our time on this but let me just quickly say this this is where many high school students get it wrong uh, and in fact, when you graduate, this is where it becomes an issue because you no longer are tied down to a schedule where you have to be at church and have to be at small groups and have to go to events. When you begin to make your own choices, that's where your heart's desires really become clear because then you're doing whatever you want to do. And here's where I want to warn you. You should be clinging to people at church as much as you possibly can. The people that run, you want to run with. 
The pastor who's preaching the word right, sit under his teaching. Be connected vibrantly to the body of Christ. This is where your hope, this is where your joy, this is where your progress in the faith is going to happen. I mean, yeah, granted, being at home, reading your Bible, prayer time, all that's important, but this is where the gathering of the body happens every week, and you should make that a priority in your life and not let anything get in the way. In addition to that, he wants you to doubt God. Remember Satan's tactic. Did God really say, God didn't say that. Take the fruit. It'll be great. You'll love it. And as brilliant as the devil is, his tactics haven't changed a whole lot. He does the same thing today. Did God really say? He didn't say that. Try this. You'll like it. Same old, same old. Except he does it in ways that appeal to what we really do want. Many of us want to do the bad thing. And of course, he tempts you towards sin. Lying, cheating, stealing, pornography, compromise, hypocrisy, you know, not being real with people. His job is to provoke that, to create that in your life, to make you want to say, no, I I want to look good in front of people. In fact, Acts chapter 5 is Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that? They sold their house and gave part of it to the church. That wasn't a big deal. That house belonged to them. But the deception was that they said, oh, we sold our house. We gave everything to the church. We're all about the church. We love the church. And unfortunately, because of that lie, they lost their lives. It's not funny, actually, now I think about it. But the point is that those itty-bitty deceptions, those hypocritical maneuvers that we employ to look good in front of people, that's satanic. The devil's behind that. What about in our church? In our church, he wants to persecute. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Throughout the church history, there have been periods of intense persecution and less intense persecution. We're in a period of, we don't really get anything except picked on. We get made fun of. We get called Bible thumpers. We get called idiots and all sorts of derogatory comments, but really nothing to the point of, hey, if you're going to profess faith in your school, you're going to go to prison. We're not there yet. But there may be a time in your life and maybe your kids' lives where if you're going to follow Christ, this may be the cost. You can't teach your kids about Jesus. That's, that's, that's evil. That's wicked. And if you do that, we're going to take your kids away and we're going to put you in prison. Or uh, maybe, hey, you can't, you can't be married the way you want to be married because it's, you know, we're, we're about this kind of marriage and you're about that other kind of marriage and we don't endorse that. Whatever that looks like, you have to be ready for this. We talk about this all the time in our church because it's such a real threat against the church. And this is the devil's doing. He wants the church to be minimized and marginalized such that you don't have, to, you don't have power you know, to, to preach the gospel. He wants to promote division, to turn your heart away from your brothers and sisters to keep you guys apart from one another, uh, such, so, such that you're, you're so busy, you're so tied down, you never make it to church, you never make it to small groups because you're, you're busy with good things or you're busy with good people, but you're not coming to church. You're not doing what you need to be doing. And that's, the sat- that's, that, that's satanic work there. And of course, that, it gets worse because in, on top of that division, there's also created the creation of conflict. This is, uh, this is huge in high school. This is massive. Creating quarrels, creating ignorant controversies, creating opposition between one another. This is where you you start tearing friends apart. Gossip, slander, conflict. I don't like what she said about me. Or she she posted something that that offended me. I don't like that she said that. Or or I don't like the fact that he's dating my ex-girlfriend. Or whatever it is. Whatever the enemy can use to promote division and conflict within the body of believers, he's going to do that. Keep going. He wants to stop evangelism. You felt this before. You felt demonic opposition if you've ever tried to open your mouth and talk to people about Jesus. It's costly. 
Because even though you know you have an opportunity, it's the right time, it's the right place, it's the right person, you, you, you almost say something and then you stop. Because it's just, it, whatever, you know, you, can, you can't even think of a good reason, just like, ah, not right now. Later, eventually. I'll do, it, I'll do it sometime. Stopping evangelism is part and parcel with what the devil wants to do, to keep eyes closed, to keep people from seeing the glory of Christ. And in fact, it might be so providential that at this very moment in the sermon, you might have been paying attention and then you stop paying attention because the devil doesn't want you to hear this part. He also wants to make people leave the church, which many, many, many of you may do. In this particular text, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, in the later times, some are going to depart from the faith, leave Christianity by devoting themselves to, dece- to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Let me tell you this, with the accessibility of so much bad teaching all around our country and on podcasts and on YouTube and every other medium, you have ample opportunity to listen to teachers and people that are going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. Not what you need to hear, though. There's a famous, there's this, I mean, in fact, some of the most popular social media accounts are, I mean, Jenner's, obviously, but some of the, the most popular pastors and teachers on social media, YouTube and Instagram and I think even Snapchat, are, are false teachers. They're people that are all about you. God's got a powerful desti- destiny for you. God's plans for you are to prosper you and to make you attractive and physically strong and financially rich and all sorts of things. And, and, and here's the thing. I mean, th- there's, there's a popular TV preacher that you might have even heard. We talk about him on occasion at this church. If you've ever sat down to listen to this guy, he's enjoyable to listen to, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not endorsing him by any stretch, but I am saying that when you sit down to listen to this guy, it's like, all right. This feels good. I feel excited. Like, I'm great. I want to go and conquer the world after he's done talking. And then I thought, no wonder he's got such a following. No wonder people are listening to his, his tribe. Because it's fun. It's enjoyable. My ears feel good when he talks. And that's the problem. Because so much of what the Bible teaches isn't always what we want to hear, right? It's what we need to hear. And when guys like me come on the stage and we talk about some of the, the harder parts of Scripture, it's not because we're trying to win a popularity contest. This doesn't make me popular. Um, this doesn't make anyone at this church popular. When you open up God's Word and say, here's what it says. It makes it hard for you, and people are going to leave because of the very stuff that we teach. And in fact, much of even what we teach is so countercultural right now, and increasingly so. You have to understand as a young person that if you're going to be committed to following Christ, it means being committed to follow everything He says. Everything He says. People are going to be tempted to leave. And he's going to send false teachers our way. People in this pulpit, people in maybe Pastor Mike's pulpit, hopefully this never happens. We try to vet our people, but maybe there's going to be people who are so good at being bad that they're able to finagle their way into a Bible-believing church and start ripping people out of the pews to come follow them in their bad teaching. There's precedent for this. Good churches have been taken down because of bad teachers. And that's the devil's work. His job is to send in false teachers, false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. The devil is good because what he does is make it look like he's doing a good thing. And so your job then is to not be outwitted by him. You have only a taste of his designs. And I hope what you feel so far is a sense of respect for the person of the devil, not respect as in like I admire him, but respect for the fact that he's at work and he's at work right now. So you need to know, point number three, how to defend yourself against his attacks. Know how to defend yourself. 
really that's what we teach week in and week out. That's what we were talking about last weekend, defending yourself against the lies, the smoke and the mirrors of the enemy's work. Uh, again, we can look at the devil as being someone cute and cuddly, a caricature, something that's not threatening. But First Peter 5.8 says that he's prowling around like a roaring lion, a hungry animal that wants to rip you to shreds. And in fact, some people still, like I said, underestimate even lions. There's a guy where CNN reported, lion attacked victim, open window to take photos. Not a, not a smart move. <laughs> not a smart move. You underestimate the power of a, of a hungry animal, and you could get attacked and perhaps die. You underestimate the power of a hungry and rabid demonic force, you might get injured by that. About 550 BC, there was a book that was written, you might, ha- you might have had to read parts of it, by Sun Tzu called The Art of War. Here's what he says. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. Okay, knowing both, enemy and yourself. If you know yourself but not the enemy, every victory gained, you'll also suffer defeats. If you know neither, you will succumb in every battle. That's where the title comes from. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. But that also means you should know yourself. And here's the first thing you should know about yourself. In fact, you are uh, not able to do this without the help of God. You need God's help. You need God to protect you. You need God to sustain you. And that's what James chapter 4 encourages us. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's for those of us who think that we're doing okay. That's the ones who are in most danger. God says those who humble themselves under his word and under his teaching, those are the ones that are going to be protected. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The resisting of the devil is humbling yourself to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is the, this is the point. If you're going to defend yourself against the enemy, you need to understand that you can't defend yourself against the enemy. You need God. You need God to do this for you. And for some of you who aren't Christians, you need to hear this especially, because you're in his crosshairs, even you. How? Why does it make sense that the devil would take all of you out? And what I mean by that is send you all to hell, as Ian was talking about earlier today. Why would the devil want to do that? Because even if you're not a Christian or no, You are made in God's image. And the devil gets joy out of sending you to hell with him. If he can slander God's image by taking you to hell, he wins. He's going down, and he knows that, but he's not going down without a fight. He'd much rather take some of you guys with him, which is why his job is to take you out. He wants to do that. You can avoid that by humbling yourself before God and saying, God, I need you to protect me. I need you to take care of me. I need you to hold me close. Anyone who's genuinely following Christ knows their weakness. Christians are often called weak people, and that's not entirely untrue. But that's not because we're different. It's just that we know that we're weak. We're not weak-minded, but we know that we're weak in spirit. We need God to help us, which is what Jesus says. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Of course, we've been talking about this all sermon long, but we need to be aware that we we need to be in, in the truth often. We talk about the sword of the Spirit. The sword itself is the very thing that's going to help us defend ourselves against the, the lies of the enemy. In fact, we're talking about all weekend long last week, lies, smoke and mirrors. How do we counteract it? With the truth. You might be familiar with the truth, but do you know it? I had a student in high school uh, before I came to this church, and I said, I'll, I'll spare his name for, for anonymity's sake. John, you reading your Bible? He said, no, no. And I said, well, okay, why? He said, I already read it once. I know it. (laughs) And I said, okay, well, maybe you should be teaching this class then, not me. He thought that, and I think a lot of us think this way, familiarity with the Bible is knowing the Bible. 
Familiarity is not enough for us. We need to intimately know it, memorize it, cherish it, make it part of who we are so that I can think, and even though I'm not deliberately thinking of a Bible verse, it so controls my thoughts and emotions that it's running in the background. It's like creating a new operating system. I'm wiping out the old operating system and I'm installing a new one by the word of God. Think about when Jesus was, uh, was dancing with the devil. How did he respond? Devil tempted him and he said, I'm the son of God, be gone, right? No, he didn't do that. His response was, it is written every single time. Now, Jesus could have easily said, I'm the son of God, move. And I think he would have had to do that. But Jesus sets an example for us in showing us that when we fight against the devil, when we fight against his, his work, the primary tool we have at our disposal is his word. Lastly, go to battle prepared. I, I doubt that any of you guys went to the track meet uh, wearing, wearing pads and a helmet. Or, conversely, I doubt that you started your football game with just gym shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, the point is, of course, you should go prepared to whatever it is you're about to do. It's the same thing in the Christian life. And that's why Ephesians 6 exists. It's about waging spiritual what? Do you say playfair? Playground? Playground, right? Warfare. It's warfare. And that's where we get it wrong so much. We, we, we stop thinking about it in terms of war. It is a spiritual war. And whether or not you're a Christian today, understand that there's warfare that, that's out there for you. Be prepared. This is a way of life. This is not just a Sunday-only kind of situation. This is a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of defending yourself against his attacks by being wise, by pursuing Christ-likeness every single day of your life, humbling yourself, knowing your Bible, being battle-ready. Satan is a real threat to you and to me. But he's not a threat that hasn't been already neutralized by God, but only partially, partially. There's a battle to fight. And in the end, Christ wins. Satan poses no real challenge to his authority, but you and I are still in the midst of that battle. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God will ultimately do away with the devil. But in the meantime, we're here to fight. And you need to fight. And I would encourage you as your pastor, if I am that, to not grow weary of being in the battle. But in fact, to wage war successfully by humbling yourself, knowing God's word, and being battle ready. Part of that, I mean, all that we talked about, prayer, uh, fellowship, being here every weekend, making it a point to dive deep into your Bible study. Otherwise, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to his lies. You're vulnerable to his work. And guess what? He's really, really good at being really, really bad. To defend against the enemy, you've got to counteract his strategy. Not pride, humility. Not ignorance, knowledge of the truth. Not unpreparedness, battle ready. Let's pray.